Uh, we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, it's, it's still, I think, new enough in the, in the year to be able to say we, we're in a new year. Um, and, uh, and, and everything new starts. I, I'm always encouraged by that. I, I get excited around starting things new. I'm, worse of a, I'm, I'm a worse manager. Like I get bored easy and I want to move on to find new things. Uh, so these, these kinds of seasons for me are, are really good. New classes to take uh, and a new sermon series. We're in Philippians. I'd encourage you to go ahead and open your Bible there. We're going to be in the first couple of verses this morning. Uh, But before we do, before we jump in and begin to study, I just want to answer the question, why study? Why study the book of Philippians? And and I thought about answering it like, well, why study the Bible at all, right? Like, I mean, does it really matter? Well, yeah, of course it matters. But in particular, why would we study Ephesians, or not Ephesians, sorry, that's on my mind, (laughs) always on my mind. Why would we study Philippians? Uh, Because it's worth it, first off. But I think, seriously, what, the, the reason to study Philippians is really found in the themes that run throughout the letter. The themes of the letter is it, probably one of Paul's most positive and most personal letters. He, he wasn't writing to correct some major, major doctrinal flaw or error. He wasn't writing to correct some sin issue, to, uh, uh, bringing some measure of discipline. He wrote it to people he knew really, really well. He cared a very great deal about and who he clearly wanted to see again. And you'll see those things uh, repeatedly come up as we work our way through this letter. But some of the particular themes that come out, first and foremost, I I don't think you can study Philippians without dealing with joy. Paul's letter, this letter, is bursting with joy. Sixteen times in these four chapters, sixteen times, there's going to be a reference to joy or a call to rejoice with him or, or his expression of rejoicing. 16 times he's going to refer to joy. He emphasizes throughout the letter a couple times very clearly, very specifically, he emphasizes the necessity and blessing of Christian unity. Standing together, being of the same mind, having the same heart, being united together. He, he calls them repeatedly to stand firm this way. And then he also is going to speak of peace. He's going to talk about his experience of peace and, 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 and their opportunity and experience for peace along with contentment. So, so we've got joy, we've got Christian unity, we've got peace and contentment. And, and, and I just think in a time like we're living now, who doesn't want more of that, right? Like who couldn't appreciate in having more joy or having more unity or having more peace or having more contentment? I, I think we all would long for it. But if we aren't careful, what we'll do is we'll, we'll gloss over this letter, looking at all the positive things. If we aren't careful, we'll fall prey to the folk theologies that rip verses out of their context and paste them on t-shirts and bumper stickers and coffee cups and, and, and that we just say tritely to try to make ourselves feel good, like, like the verse in Philippians that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Right? And we'll run around saying that and using it in ways that Paul never intended it to be used. As an example, as a kid, I wanted to fly. I could do all things through him who strengthens me, except fly. (laughs) I can hardly jump, right? It's just the reality. It's true. Paul is honestly saying he can do all things through him, through Jesus, who strengthens Paul. It's true for us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. 
But if we aren't careful, we'll take that out of the context and totally change its meaning and apply it in ways in which Paul never intended it and it actually makes it untrue. The, 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 the thing that's true about this verse, though, is true about this whole letter because it is such a positive letter. So many people focus on the positive nature of this letter and they gloss over the reality of the circumstances, the context of the people who were living and receiving this letter. Philippi was a Roman colony in Greece. Now, I've got a map. I brought a map, and it's the little highlighted place up there, the arrow pointing to it, right? So, so Philippi is a Roman colony in Greece. J- just even that statement should signify political trouble, right? So, so one commentator I, I read from uh, mentioned that, that it was considered Rome in miniature. Like, the people there were even considered Roman citizens. They were treated differently than other people who lived under Rome's authority and power. They were treated as if they were citizens. They had uh, uh, Latin currency or Latin inscriptions on their currency. They spoke Latin even though they lived in Greece. These were people who, li- who, who were distinct, uh, different than all the people who lived around them. Just, just think about that and the troubles that that caused. And how do you think it came to be a Roman colony in Greece? except through conflict, right? This, these are people who knew and understood what conflict was. So politically, you can imagine there's trouble. Philippi was predominantly not Christian, but pagan. The church established there was likely the first in Europe. It was the first place outside of the Middle East that a church actually existed, at least that we know of biblically and historically. And it's not to say that, that maybe something was happening that we didn't know about, but... but realistically, as far as we can tell, that this is probably the first church in that, in, in that area. Paul and his group, and you can read about this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, they were beaten and arrested for preaching the gospel there and the gospel having an effect. So it was, there was difficulty. There was religious difficulty. Paul and his group were Christians going into an unchristian place, preaching the gospel and receiving the due consequence of that, which was beat you up and arrest you. Really, the the reason that they got beaten and arrested is because there was a a slave girl who was possessed by a demon who, because of her demon possession, was able to do fortune-telling. And through the fortune-telling, her masters, the people who owned her, were making lots of money. And and they're like, like, hey, this this guy ruined our girl. And so they sicked the authorities on them. And and, and as a result, Paul and his, his people, his posse, if you will, uh, end up beaten and arrested because the gospel was making inroads into a non-Christian place. It should also be pointed out that as Paul is writing this letter, he is a prisoner. He's already in prison. It, it, it could have been in Caesarea or, or Caesarea or, or Rome. Um, I tend to lean towards Rome based on the different arguments for that, but there's not a lot of agreement. Uh, about that, so I'm not going to try to make a point, but, but other than he was in prison. He was in jail. He was incarcerated. It might have been homeless. He might have been uh, chained to a Roman guard. We, we don't exactly know, uh, but, but he was not free to live and function as he pleased. He was a prisoner. So, he, so, so we have political trouble and strife. We have religious trouble and strife, and we have personal trouble and strife. Sound familiar? 
everywhere we look. This, this is the world we live in. Alec Mautier, one of the commentators that I'm using, in fact, I, I listed the name of his, um, uh, uh, his commentary and a link to it uh, in the resources that I shared with you, I think it was last week. Um, he, he, he picks up on this and he, he writes this. He says, Philippians is a joyful letter, but its undercurrent is a sober realization that time is running out. Paul himself was facing a death sentence. The church was tensed up, ready for the assault of a menacing world and for insidious encroachment of false doctrine. Above all, God's clock was turning relentlessly to the hour which, with, which would be both end and climax. Paul is writing probably the most positive and joy-filled letter that he would ever write to a people who understood what it was to face trouble into a world that, that's filled with trouble. So, so Paul isn't writing a, a letter referring to joy, unity, peace, and contentment because he or those in Philippi had finally figured out the equation or, or attained or achieved the perfect circumstance that resulted in these things or that allowed them to live a life without trial or trouble. Instead, his emphasis on joy, unity, peace, contentment in this life is built upon the final and most powerful, most prevalent theme of his letter, Jesus and the gospel. Every ounce of this letter, the thing that makes it so positive in the face of so much difficulty, is Jesus and the gospel. And he repeatedly demonstrates through this letter that to have Jesus and, and is, the, is of the greatest value. To have more of Jesus is the greatest reward. To, it's the greatest motive. His gospel work is the thing that brings with it a greater experience of joy, unity, peace, and contentment. Paul is so laser-focused on this that it's almost, if you're not careful, easy to read past the sobering realities that he's writing in the midst of. Because the gospel brings about so much beautiful and desirable fruit. And I think, I could be wrong, I, you know, if, if you've been under my preaching very long, you know that I don't normally think that. But I could be wrong. But I think there's a lot of relevance for us in this letter and the circumstances in which he's writing such a beautiful, powerful, and personal letter. What we're going to see and, and learn through this letter, this is my prayer for our church. That because of Jesus and the gospel, that we would find that we can find joy in the midst of turmoil. Uh, is there another place that we can experience joy? Is there, an, is, is there a world in which we can exist right now that, that we're not going to be? So, so we've got to figure out. We've got to figure out how to find joy in the midst of turmoil. Because of Jesus and the gospel, we can enjoy peace even in the midst of conflict. Is there a world in which we can run off to that I mean, we can't even go, if you're married, you can't even go home and avoid conflict, right? Probably not. But because of Jesus and the gospel, we, we, we can be content in a world that doesn't satisfy. Because of Jesus and the gospel, we can rejoice in all of this together. And, 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 I, and I am praying, I, I would call on you to pray for, for your brothers and sisters that these are the things that we would find, that we would, that we would grow in in this time and in this study.
Even in the greeting of the letter, which is where we're going to focus today, the first two verses, we're going to, we're going to have an opportunity to see that Christ, that, that, that in Christ we can rejo- rejoice together regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And so we're going to read those verses, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig into our series on Philippians. The word says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us. These words, words that we would just simply typically just fly by, just look over and just, oh, we got to get past the greeting so we can get to the letter. Help us just pause here. Help us to sit here. I pray by the power of your spirit that you would reveal your truth about who we are and about all the reasons we have to rejoice. I I pray, Father, that as we begin this study, (laughs) that you would start a work in us that would encourage us, enable us, empower us to, to lift up our droopy heads and straighten our weak knees and look with great joy to the work that you've set out in front of us as we wait for you to return. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is a standard greeting in a letter today. This is just the way greetings happen in letters. Even some of the words that Paul chooses are common words. So, so for example, grace. It is a typical, normal, Gentile greeting. It's just a way to say, uh, how you doing? Right? Like that's, we, we don't, we're not really asking the question, how are you doing? We're, we're saying, hello. We're saying, how you doing? Like, no, no, nobody's really, some people do answer that question, and that's the people we seek to avoid, right? I'm not, it's true. I had a friend that used to, that used to, he, he came up with like a five-minute litany of all the problems that he'd ever experienced in his life. And people would say, hey, how you doing, George? George has passed away now. He is really good now because he's with the Lord. But he would run through, oh, my back's hurt, my toe. He, he'd have this whole list of things. And people didn't know what to do with George because that's not what anybody's really wanting to know. It's just a greeting. You're just trying to break the ice, trying to get to the conversation, right? That, that, that's typically what's happening with, with these words. But even peace, so, so that's a normal Jewish greeting. Now, in, in Hebrew, they would say shalom, and he uses the Greek word Irene. But, but the idea is it's just another way to greet. It's just common words that were used to, to just get past the greeting But look at what he does. It's so clear that Paul is not just simply greeting. He's establishing a doctrinal foundation that all of his letter is going to rest on and and a doctrinal framework that his whole letter is going to be built out of. Every ounce of it is built upon Jesus Christ and his gospel work. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. The saints are saints in Christ. Christ Jesus. Grace and peace comes from God our Father and Jesus. There's a a way in which he's not simply saying, hey, how you doing? He's saying, look, I'm writing because of Jesus, and I'm writing to people who exist because of Jesus, and I want them to have all the blessings of Jesus. That's what he's starting off. That's that's how he's opening his letter. And so so that kind of brings me to the point uh, that that I would summarize this sermon with. The main point of the message is this. In the grace and peace of God, 
We have every reason to rejoice together as servants of and saints in Christ Jesus Christ our Lord. In the grace and peace of God, we have every reason to rejoice together as servants of and saints in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, during our Christmas Eve service, we, we did something a little different. And in fact, I was told by several people, that's the best one we ever had. I'm thinking, how in the world? Can't replicate that. <laughs> Don't come next year because it's going to be worse, right? But what we, what we did was a little different than what we normally do, but we walked through the, 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 the themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, love. And I asked families, people, families of leaders, to, to come and share how they had seen in a tangible way Jesus give them a tangible experience of that particular theme. So we had, we had families, a family come up and share about hope. And, and that family, you may not know it, but Melissa's family, they, they recently, her father passed away just a couple months ago. And she's up here broken, feeling the weight of that loss, speaking of the hope that she has because of Christ Jesus. Because even though she's mourning, she's not mourning as one without hope because of Christ Jesus. We listen to stories of a loss of parent, loss of child, uh, uh, marital struggles, and then, and then talking about peace, the reality of the just difficulty of experiencing peace, and every ounce of it. We, we had these personal testimonies of people who could speak of these beautiful themes as real experiences because they knew and walked with Jesus. Here, this is what he does. This is what his gospel does, is it enables us to experience the best, even though we can't achieve the right set of circumstances to actually have it all around us at this time. The world is out there living, trying, fighting so hard to achieve just the right set of circumstances. If we just learn the right lessons, right? If we just have the right information, if we just observe the right realities, if we just know enough, that's the idea. And so we pursue, and we, and we get caught up in this in Christianity as well. I don't want to make it sound as if we don't. We pursue the idol of knowledge. We think if we just know enough, then we'll be okay. Then, 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 then there's a, the seeking to control enough, to, to, to establish the right set of circumstances, to, to get the right amount of money in the bank, to have the right number of kids, to get the right spouse, to find the right job, to, you na- I, I mean, any number of things. Everything down, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's external to us, our circumstances, but even our personal view of ourselves. If I just lose enough weight or gain enough weight or have enough muscle or maybe I got too, I don't know anybody complaining about being too muscly, but, but who, who's, who, has any, have you met anybody that just does, feels really good about themselves? I, you can almost always talk to somebody and find out that there's something that they're displeased with themselves. Oh, I just wish I could change this. And, and so we, we try to control our lives, and we try to control our circumstances, and we try to exercise our power. And if we just got the right set of circumstances, if we just had enough control, we just exercised enough power, then we'd be happy. Just get the right set of circumstances. Then, finally, Paul's convinced, and, 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 and in this letter, I think we're going to see it clearly. It's in Christ Jesus that we find every reason to rejoice. Right now, not waiting for some time off in the future, not waiting for all the stars to align and having the right, uh, having Jupiter in the right, I don't know, right moon. I don't even know the right language for that stuff. Uh, it, it, it's silliness. 
right here, even in this greeting, we can begin to see reasons that we had to rejoice. First and foremost, Paul, not first and foremost, uh, first, Paul and Timothy were servants of Christ Jesus. And so are we. Now, Paul didn't use his common title. Now, if you go back and you read Paul's letters, most often he's identifying himself as Paul, an apostle. He, he didn't choose to use that. And instead, he uses the word servant. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about why, why he didn't use the word apostle. And if you want to sit around and debate that with your buddies, you go right ahead. But we don't know. So I don't know. I mean, there's so much written about it. I, I read so many things about why Paul didn't choose to we ask him when we get there. That's, that's all we got, right? We, he didn't tell us why he didn't use it. He just didn't use it. He called himself a servant. And, and here's the thing. He didn't just say, I'm a servant. And, and, and that hit his readers like servant hits us. He actually chose a word that's something a little bit more derogatory, a little further down than, a little lower than what we might typically think of. Sir, this, he's not talking about a butler that's running a household. He's talking about slave. In fact, literally, the word translated servant is doulos. And according to Strong's Dictionary and every other Greek resource I have, that word doulos literally translated is slave. That's slave in a literal sense or a figurative sense. That's a voluntary or an involuntary slave. Frequently, that is referring to someone who is in a sense of subjection or subserviency. This is shocking to our modern ears. The idea of slavery is, and rightly so, carries horrific uh, ideas with it. It carries a lot of baggage. Rightly so. Don't get me wrong. Slavery wasn't pretty back then. It wasn't more refined. And, oh, they did slavery right back in Paul's day. Slavery was still slavery. People were still property. They were removed from having their own will and being free to do their own things. They were bought for money. They were owned by a master. That's the reality of it. And Paul is willfully, great joy saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Not just me, but Timothy too. And and, and the reality is, the thought is, is he would have considered this of all of the people that worked with him. Now, I think probably our translators, our English translators, probably pick the word servant in modern translations because our modern ear is shaped by our understanding of what slavery was in the uh, African slave trade. I get why they do it. I, I, I understand that. But here's the reality. Paul isn't speaking of being a slave of a master like a white plantation owner in American colonies. Paul is speaking of being a slave to a master who has authority over all things and all people. And who happens to be good in all he does. So, so, so it, it's not a struggle for him. He recognized, hey, I've been bought at a price. He writes that in 1 Corinthians 6.20. I've been bought, we've been bought at a price. He knew that his life was no longer his to live according to how he saw fit. He understood that God's will in Jesus Christ for him was better than his own will for him. And he wanted in every way to give himself to this. He understood. He understood that independence and living as if we are completely free of any authority is foolishness and false. You're always a slave to something. 
You're either going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to Christ. Either or. One or the other. And he says, I'd much prefer being a slave to Christ. And, and what's actually really interesting is, is it's going to be, he's going to use this term one more time in this letter, but not referring to anyone else as uh, any other ordinary person, but to Jesus. The very same word in Philippians chapter 2, he turns and says, speaking of Jesus as, as this great act of humility, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. It's the same word. Dulos, Jesus, who has every right to be worshipped. Jesus, who has every right to be adored. Jesus, who has every right to sit on a throne and exercise authority, allowed himself to live under the will of God, expressed in the will of a bunch of evil people who would ultimately condemn him falsely and crucify him as a criminal. Paul knows that following Jesus may make a, a, a slave of him, and really by extension, us. But being a slave of Jesus is far better than being a slave to the sin that once is destroying us. There, there is no middle ground. There, there is, there, there's no gray area. There's no, oh, I was a slave to sin, and now I'm in here in the middle, and I'm thinking about being a slave to Jesus. You're either a slave to Jesus... Or you're a slave to your sin. Jesus is a good master with grace and peace. Slave, uh, sin is, is a horrific master. It's divisive and destructive, harmful. But it's in being Jesus' slave that Paul knows there is reason to rejoice. He, he's not just wanting this for himself and, and, and Timothy and others who... He wants his readers to take on this identity. And here's how I know it. He doesn't say it exactly right here, but here's how I know it. By looking at the whole of the letter, he comes to Philippians 3.17 and he writes, Brothers, join in imitating me, keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's saying, look, as I'm looking at Jesus and Jesus has made himself a slave and I've made myself a slave to Jesus, you follow this example. This is where you find joy. See, we got it in our heads that we're going to find joy by running out and doing the things we want to do. We're going to be happy if we get life figured out doing the things that make us feel good. Those feelings are always fleeting. We got, it, we, we got this idea that, oh man, I'm just going to, I'm going, to run, or I'm going to run after the stuff that just seems so pleasant and exciting and encouraging. Paul says the way to joy, the path to joy isn't in, the, the reason to rejoice isn't in getting what you want, but in committing yourself to being a slave of Christ. It seems counterintuitive. But if you want a reason to rejoice, it's not found in being a master of yourself. Because in being a master of yourself, you are a slave to your sin. Being, finding joy is being a slave of Christ. And so there, there's the first reason. Even in this introduction, Paul and Timothy were servants of Christ Jesus, and so are we. That's reason to rejoice. Next, second, all the Christians in Philippi were saints in Christ Jesus. And so are we. Look at who he addresses this letter to, specifically, directly to. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. He addresses this letter to one group, one big group with two subsets inside that group. First, the members of the church. He addresses all of them along with the elders 
and the deacons. This isn't a letter to elders and deacons who are then supposed to impose something upon the members. This is a letter written to, to, it's not even written to mature Christians that are then supposed to set an example for immature Christians. This letter is written to every Christian in this church, including the elders and the deacons. Now, just a couple of quick notes about that before we just run past it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of thought that, that church governance of elder, deacon, and members uh, developed in time. That, that it wasn't something that, that was originally part of the fabric of the church. Paul wrote this letter probably 60, 62 AD. It seems as if this was his practice. You can see it in 1 Timothy. You can see it in Titus. Titus, he just references uh, elders, but it's likely because the church didn't have a need at that point for deacons. But, but it seems that this was Paul's practice. That as the church was being established, he would install elders, that's the overseers, and as need arise, deacons would be raised up as well. And these two complementary roles wouldn't stand over the church with, with uh, some, oh yeah, now you, know, you, you, you come to be an elder and, and now you've arrived at Christianity or some, some special place of Christianity. These are just lead servants in the church. They're just leading in service. They're just people who set an example in front of it. I am with you. I am a member of the body of Christ. Dave and Bob, the other elders in this church, all the deacons, we are not Christians squared or Christians to some uh, exponential power. We're just Christians. We're just people in the church who've been given the role of leading in service by leading. There's no notoriety. Paul, Paul does reference in Timothy uh, about double honor for elders who rule well and things like that. But, but the intent is not that we're supposed to be venerated or lifted up. In fact, that's a, it's a mistaken idea. It's a, a flawed thinking. We're just believers alongside of you following Christ. We might be a, a, a step ahead or a couple of steps ahead in our pursuit of him, in our maturity in him. But we are not more. So, so we have these two ideas, right? We're, we're equal. We're all members of the body. And, and this is really probably the way it was always intended to be. At least the way Paul always did it was establishing elders. And as need was established, deacons would be raised up. We can even see that example going all the way back to Acts chapter 6. Anyway, so, so just a couple notes there. That, now, now but, but I want to pay attention, most attention, to the word saints. Because Paul doesn't write to the members in Christ Jesus. He doesn't write to the Christians in Christ Jesus. He writes to the saints. And here's the problem with this word. At least the people I know that most often use the word saint. This is just my experience. Now, you may use the word saint and all. You, you may, I, don't, I just don't know many people that do. But it's most often Roman Catholic or people who have, they're members of churches that are highly liturgical. Like they got this, all, all, this, all, all this structure and, and, and stuff to go around. So, so, so they walk around talking about Luke as a Saint Luke, Paul as Saint Paul, Mark, Matthew, John, Saint, 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 right? And, and they, they use this title to infer some sort of special status. Again, that's a misunderstanding of the word. In fact, the term Christian is only used three times in the Bible. Now, this is the, this is the typical way we refer to ourselves. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. In Christ, following Jesus, we're Christian. In the Scriptures, only used three times uh, in all of the Scripture. But it wasn't a name we gave ourselves. 
It was a name given to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, some think, and I can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt, but some think it was given as an insult and not a compliment. You, you as a follower of Christ, being called a Christian would have been insulting, is, is the thought. Now, again, I can't prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt, but, but Tacitus, the ancient Roman historian, back in, um, uh, he lived in 56 to 106, so sometime in that time, he's writing about the history of Rome, and he's referring to, to Christians, who's followers of Christ, and he, he, he makes this statement about the term Christian. He calls it a vulgar appellation, a vulgar title, likely meaning that it's an insult to those who receive it. So, so, so we call ourselves Christians, but, but here's the thing about this word. God's people are called saints over 60 times in the New Testament. 60 times. The word saint, hagios, it means sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, religiously and ceremonially consecrated. Unfortunately, it's come to mean, oh, I'm a Christian on a new level. And so, oh, it's, it's based off of, oh, this person did some amazing things. God used them in an extraordinary way. And they're a saint. But consider who Paul is writing to. Philippi. Do you remember, do you know any of the names of the members at Philippi? You can actually answer that question. Most of us would say no. Do we have a list somewhere? We don't have a long list. We don't have like a membership record. But if you look at Acts chapter 16, you can see that, that a woman named Lydia, who was a businesswoman, sold purple goods, her and her whole household was, were, were some of the first converts in Philippi. The, the Philippian jailer, so I told you that Paul gets arrested, beaten and arrested, him and his party get beaten and arrested because they cast a demon out of this fortune-telling girl who was, who was coming along every day uh, annoying them, and it actually says Paul got annoyed with her, which is <laughs> kind of encouraging because and sometimes I get annoyed too. And, and Paul got annoyed with her and he turned around in, out of annoyance and he rebuked her and he cast a demon out of her because he's annoyed with her. And now she can't fortune tell anymore. She can't make money for her masters anymore. And so they sick the authorities on him. Paul and Timothy get put in jail and they decide, hey, we're here. So what do we do? We sing. They, so they sang hymns. And in the middle of the night, the doors, there's an earthquake and the doors fall open. And, and here they are ready to just leave. And the Philippian jailer is like, oh my gosh. I'm going to be crucified over them. I mean, maybe not crucified, but I'm going to be in trouble because now these people are going to be free. And he comes into the jail and finds Paul and Timothy waiting there for him. He, they end up at his house and his whole house ends up converted. So, so we have Lydia in her household, the Philippian jailer in his household, possibly an ex-fortune teller who was demon-possessed. But then as we read through the letter, we meet Yodia and Syntyche. And you know what they're remembered for? Conflict. And Paul's pleading with the church in Philippi to help them get along because they don't get along. We don't know these people, and yet he's calling them saints. They didn't do anything extraordinary except just get saved. Just made holy by God. That's what the word means. The people who are made holy, that are made sacred. J.M. Boyce Another commentary I shared with you in those resources earlier this week hits this trouble caused by saving the title for certain people. In his commentary, he writes this. A great deal of trouble had been caused for many seeking to understand what the Bible says about being a saint by the erroneous assumption that the word refers to personal 
holiness. It does not. The one who is a saint in the biblical sense will strive to be holy. But his holiness, however little or however great it may be, does not make him a saint. He is a saint because he has been set apart by God. The, word, the biblical word for saint refers to consecration. The biblical word, hear me, this is so important. The biblical word for saint refers to consecration. I think he's right. Today we use the term as an adjective, talking about someone's activity. Oh, they're so saintly. And and it's not a bad use of the word, but it misses the original intent of the word. We, we, We look at something that someone's done and we assume that, oh man, they're so holy. You know, the Pharisees, if you read the New Testament, the Pharisees appeared extremely holy. And Jesus, some of his strongest rebukes were saved for them. Matthew 23, they were whitewashed tombs. They looked pure on the outside, they were dead on the inside. All of their works were empty. Don't, don't misunderstand. We, we, we got to get this. We, gotta get, we are to strive to live pure and God-honoring lives. In fact, Paul's going to give a command to live in a manner worthy. He's going to say that here in the letter. But striving for holiness, striving for holiness is always a response to having been made holy. Striving for holiness always follows being made holy. Holy, because we were unholy, we can do nothing holy until God makes us holy. Then, because we've been made holy, we're called and responsible to live holy. Being made holy precedes living holy, being consecrated precedes living sanctified. That's the the idea is that before we can do anything honorable, We have to be put in a position of being honorable. So the the distinction here to be made is this positional holiness. God says in Christ, you are holy. You are a saint. Believe it. Because God has made you positionally holy. Your life and practice is to express that holiness. To flip these two things around is to be a legalist. To flip these two things around is to lose the gospel. To flip these two things around is to be anything but saintly. You might appear saintly. You might appear holy. But there will be no holiness because in and of ourselves, we cannot make ourselves holy. Paul uses this word and he points it right at the members of the church. And not just one or two, but all of them, all of the saints... Right? All of the Christians, all of the believers in, 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 in Philippi. And he refers to every member of the church this way. And in fact, it seems to me, as, as I did my study this week, it seems to me that this is Paul's favored term for Christians in the New Testament. He's the one that uses it the vast majority of the times, pointing it to Christians. Let me just give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, do you know about the church in Corinth? They were a jacked up group of people. Like they had, Paul's writing that letter. He's confronting them in sin and he's correcting them in a number of ways. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who are being made holy, right? Who, who are being purified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. 
responsible to live sanctified lives, responsible to live holy lives. In fact, the Greek words, it's the same root word. Called to be holy together. Practice, they're called to sanctified, honorable lives. Called by God to be saints. Called by God holy. So this group of, that's a messed up church. Ultimately, God does a work in them. We think there's repentance and things that comes out of that letter. But, but, they're called to be saints. Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's writing this to a a, a church that's made up of Gentiles and Jews. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Once you were far off, he says at the beginning of that section. Once you were far off, once you were distant, once you weren't near. Now, you're, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members together with the saints, members of the household of God. We are all now saints. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This seems to be Paul's preferred title for Christian. So you're going to sound weird if you start walking around calling each other saint, right? I'm a saint. That's going to sound weird in our, in our language. But biblically speaking, that seems to be the preferred title Paul had for Christian people. You are saints. You are holy. You are consecrated unto God. The conclusion then is not only that we're saints in Christ Jesus, or, or that they're not only saints in Christ Jesus, but so are we in Christ. We're no longer sinners. Wait a minute. But I still sin. Yeah, and we do struggle with it. But in Christ, you are holy. I had this conversation earlier this week. First time I've ever thought of it in these terms. But if you think of a, think of a pressure gauge, and like you got, these, you got this red area, you don't want to fall down in too low a pressure, and you got this green area that, oh, this is it. And, 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 and the highest pressure is that's the one everybody's shooting for. That's perfection, right? And somehow we're floating between low pressure and high pressure. And we think, oh, man, i gotta, I got to be holy. i got to be holy. i got to be holy. And we think we can only be holy if we get over here pegged out to the max in perfection. That's not how this works, according to what Paul's teaching us. According to what the Scripture teaches us. We are holy. We're maxed out as much as possibly can be because in Christ Jesus, we are saints. We're no longer identified by God as sinners. Because we are saints, we're no longer to sin. This is not permission to run and do whatever we want to do. That's why there's verses that speak to us about not using our freedom as a reason to just run and do the craziest stuff in the world that we want to do. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin. But having been made a saint, having been made holy, we are now responsible and able, called to live saintly, holy lives. But the reason to rejoice isn't first and foremost because we actually act holy. The reason to rejoice is that we have been made holy. God has set you apart. He has consecrated you. He has chosen you. He has made you distinct in the world because of your relationship to him through Jesus Christ. And this leads us to the third reason that we have to rejoice that I think is listed even in this, that's evident even in this introduction grace and peace from god is the source of their joy and ours now we've talked a lot about this over the last several weeks i'm not going to go into a long explanation about each of these but grace just to define that again it's that unmerited 
We can't deserve it. We'll never earn it. We'll never pay it back. It's unmerited. It's unobligated. God did not have to give it. He's not required to do it. He only does it because of who he is. He's unobligated to us. We earn and deserve death, condemnation, and judgment. But God gives us something different, not because he's obligated, but because he's gracious. And it's unlimited. Man, just think about this. That we gain any blessing in Christ Jesus is amazing. But repeatedly we're told of the immense amount of blessings we've been given by God in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, Paul says in Ephesians. Peter writes that you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. God is not withholding anything from us in Christ Jesus. We have been, this grace has been lavished upon us. Is covering us completely. There's no ounce, no, no, no inkling, no, no, no space uncovered. We are completely covered up by His grace. Grace to you and peace. The, the, the word, it, it, it speaks of harmonious relationships. It refers to, to, to not being at contention with someone, not being at war with them. We don't think of it in these terms very often. But apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we were enemies of God. But in Christ Jesus, there is no enmity left. All of his wrath is swallowed up. Every ounce of his wrath is swallowed up in the death of Jesus Christ. He is now for us. So who can be against us? And just, just, oh, this doesn't seem like that. Like, why are you making such a big deal about how is that the path to joy? But because of God's grace, we are saints. We couldn't be this if not for his grace because we can't be holy on our own. If, not, if this is not a work of God's grace in and through Jesus Christ, then we can't be called saints. Not honestly. Not, not, not with any kind of uh, uh, candor. Because we're in and of ourselves, absolutely unholy. Even as His holy people, even as His saints, we'd all admit that we're still struggling living holy lives. How desperately we still need His grace. And how, I just imagine this, how in the world are we ever going to have any joy in life if we're supposed to be holy, supposed to live holy, and can't live holy, but God's still powerful, God's still righteous, God's still judging, God, God's, still, God's still holy. How, how is there going to be any joy if there is no grace? If God is only all-powerful, eternal, righteous, perfectly sinless, if He is good in everything He does, and we are unholy, and we deserve wrath, condemnation, death, how does that amount to joy if we remove his grace. If you take away God's grace, that's a reason to fear. Grace and peace from God is the source of our joy. So, so peace, because of God's peace, we, we can actually be his servants. We can actually be on his side. Without peace with him, we are at war against him. It's not a war we intentionally picked. It's one we were born into. Well, we wouldn't be his servants. There would be, there would, there would be, and if you put all this together, there would be no 
no joy in being slave of a master who isn't gracious. Right? There'd be no joy in serving a God who isn't gracious. There'd be no ability to serve a God. See, without his grace, there is no peace and, and no reason to rejoice. But in his grace, we have also his peace and we have every reason to rejoice. This is why Paul wrote in his letter, Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And it's so important, so, so, so necessary for us to see and pay attention to. He says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We can rejoice because we have received grace and peace from God. Because in Christ Jesus, we have been made saints. And because we are saints in Christ Jesus, we can be servants of Christ Jesus. And this is all the reason in the world we need to re- we've been given to rejoice. In the grace and peace of God, we have every reason to rejoice together as servants of and saints in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's just the introduction. That's just the greeting. There's so much that this letter has to show us. I pray, I pray that we will all be filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with contentment, filled with just standing unified together, rejoicing together in Christ Jesus as we continue our study in it in the weeks to come. Let's pray.